listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. I don't know if you've heard, but the word on the street is that Christmas is starting early this year in efforts to uh, counter or get a break from the strain of the pandemic and the stress of the elections, people are turning to decorating trees and lights as a welcome distraction. It's hard to wait, isn't it? Especially when times are tough. Waiting can be wearying. We long for uh, relief from the sadness, repair for the brokenness. And yet, waiting is the very season we find ourselves in, at least according to the Christian calendar. Advent is a time of waiting, and this is the first Sunday of Advent. In Advent, we seek to step into the experience of those who waited before us as they longed for the coming of the Messiah King, his first coming, who the New Testament identifies as Jesus Christ. And as we step into that experience, we then equip ourselves for our time of waiting, for the return, for the second coming of the Messiah King, Christ. Now, as God's people, we do lots of things. We sing together. We serve together. We work together. We worship together. We pray together. But what we do perhaps most is we wait together. Waiting in the Bible isn't just marking time. It's a spiritual practice. It's actual character formation. This is one of the reasons Jesus told so many parables about waiting. In fact, uh, it's not just the fact that we wait, but the manner in which we wait, which seems to get more of the attention And as we do, we come to understand that in the waiting, we learn about ourselves and we learn about others. It's in our waiting that we discover our temptations, uh, where we'll go to get numb or to get busy or to binge or to vent because we're tired of waiting. Uh, It's in our waiting that we get a view of our maturity, the ability to put off our desires but even more than just put off our desires, then have the strength to serve other people while we wait. It's in our waiting that uh, we learn about our hope. Is our hope set on the city of man or the city of God? And it's in our waiting that we get in touch with our longing. What is the true longing of our heart? Is it one day to meet face to face our creator and king, our redeemer, and our Savior. Now, I'm excited to decorate the tree and put up the lights, but I'll tell you, it can't hold a candle to Advent. Advent is the way that we learn something um, deep, which lights up our soul and lights up our joy in a new way. And as we enter into this season of waiting, uh, we want to focus our attention on waiting for a Savior looking at the comfort that we long for, 
the glory that we long for, the king for whom we long, and also the restoration that we long for. And that's going to be our focus today. We'll be looking at all of these topics through the prophet Isaiah, who is speaking to a people who are waiting, even though they may not really believe it. He's speaking to the nation of Judah, as Israel is now split into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And Judah is waiting, again, whether they believe it or not, for a judgment by way of military disaster from Assyria. Isaiah preaches that word to them, that they need to get ready for that suffering and discipline of God. But more so, he wants to ready them about the promise of restoration, of a restorer who will come and will bring hope into their lives. Now, to restore something means to return it to its original or its ideal condition. You might think about furniture, or you might think about a piece of artwork. Well, the restoration Isaiah is talking about is nothing short of total restoration, cosmic restoration, physical, emotional, spiritual restoration, the restoration that the kingdom of God and the Savior bring. And so in chapter 11, we'll look at two things today, that agent of restoration and the achievements that he will bring about, the agent of restoration and the achievements of restoration. Let's look at that first point, the agent of restoration. Now, if you've lived in D.C. for a while, uh, chances are you've looked at the Capitol Dome and seen it has been an object of major restoration. But oftentimes we don't see the agents of restoration, the 2,000 plus men and women that work for the architect of the Capitol. Uh, They are the ones that have uh, done this behind the scenes work to restore something which is a treasure in our nation. They are the ones that laid the 55 miles of scaffolding who would remove 600 to 700 pound ornaments who found new techniques uh, for keeping things together rather than welding, which keeps breaking down, who found ways to reproduce the glass authentically. They are agents of restoration. Isaiah turns our attention to another agent of restoration, and he, he, he describes him through three images and three sets of word couplets together. Now, these three images are familiar to anybody that's looked at a flower or got their hands a little dirty in a garden. Now, young folk, maybe you've had the um, opportunity to plant something. And uh, as you did, I did this in the fall, we, we keep looking at the plant for any sign of growth, any sign of new growth, right? Any, any little sprig, any little sprout, any little shoot, This is the first image that Isaiah gives us. But he's not turning our attention to a shoot on a plant or a tree, but rather a shoot that grows out of the throne of Israel. And this is something that Israel desperately needs. Their most recent king, King Ahaz, has been a stump of a king. He has been spiritually dead. Now, when you look at a stump, it's kind of sad, isn't it? 
Because as you look at it, if, especially if it's a big stump, you realize, well, something big and beautiful once lived there, right? Something, some grand tree once stood there, but no more. Well, Isaiah, with the words of the Lord, looks at the throne of Israel and says it looks like a dead stump. But if you look closely, there's a little sprig, a little shoot coming out of it. Isaiah stokes the imagination of Israel by saying to them, this shoot will be a king like the son of Jesse. Now, for those of you that are familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, you understand that Jesse was the father of David. And so what Isaiah is saying is, Israel, the people of God, you can expect a king like King David, Israel's greatest king. In fact, you can expect uh, King David as he was in his best, not when he had stumbled and faltered. Because he not only refers to David um, as a shoot, but he also refers to him as a branch, this descendant of David, as a branch. Now, you know, when something sprouts as a little shoot, you hope it's going to grow up and then begin to have a branch. And after a branch, you're hoping there'll be a bud and some fruit. Well, this branch will bear fruit. Verse 3 through 5 tell us it'll be the fruit of righteousness and faithfulness. Those things will be so close to this king, so intimately uh, identified with this king, they'll be like the belt that he wears, the sash around his waist. Unlike King Ahaz, who was full of ego, full of wickedness, filled with injustice. In fact, he was so wicked, they wouldn't even bury him with the other kings. That's pretty bad. But unlike that, this future king, this future restorer will be filled with the Spirit of God. Now, there are a few times in the Old Testament uh, someone is said to have the Spirit permanently resting on them. Moses, Joshua, David. Here we're told as well that this king, the Spirit will rest upon him, but there's a triple helping, so to speak. And this is where we see those uh, three two-word couplets together. We're told that this restorer will be filled with wisdom and understanding. That means uh, the leadership ability to, to make sound judgments, to have the right perspective, not a foolish perspective or a paranoid perspective or a selfish perspective, but a righteous perspective in judgment. Also, he'll be filled with a, of, of the spirit of counsel and might. That means that he'll have the credibility and the power to carry out his plans. And then lastly, we're told he'll be filled with the knowledge of the Lord and the fear of the Lord. He won't be just about Bible trivia, but he will know the Lord intimately, and he'll so long to honor him that he would rather uh, displease men than displease the Lord. So there's no contradiction between the way he rules and his character, what he does and who he is. His character actually is the binding force of his rule, as one scholar puts it. That's pretty great, huh? I mean, that sounds like a king you and I would want to have. In fact, it sounds like a too good to be true king. How can it be? Well, it gets to the third image. We have the shoot and the branch, but the root. Now, as you know, the root comes before everything, right? 
And it raises a question. How can this king be someone that follows David to be a shoot and to be a branch, but also be for David, to be a root? Well, it's because this isn't any ordinary king. This is the anointed Messiah of the Lord. This is a divine king. This is the Son of Man that Daniel spoke of. This is the Alpha and Omega. And it's why he has the wisdom and the understanding to be an expert restorer of things. Agent of restoration par excellence. Now, some of you have maybe seen the show Antique Roadshow before. You know, it's when people bring their old stuff into experts and see their value. Some folks, uh, they bring in things they think are very valuable and it's more sentimental value, right? Doesn't, doesn't really have much uh, inherent value. Other people bring in things they don't think it's much and they're, wow, it would, it would sell for this much money. And then there are other folks that have something of value, but uh, in their efforts to restore it themselves without the proper knowledge, they actually devalue it. Maybe it's a piece of furniture that had some wearing down. And they thought, well, you know, I'll sand it and restain it. And in that, they brought the value down of the piece because they didn't know how to restore it. Well, a similar thing happens with you and I. Uh, We look at our lives and the way they need to be restored. We look at the brokenness of them. And in our own wisdom, we then seek to restore them. And as we do, we actually devalue ourselves. For instance, maybe it's in the area of our accomplishments. We look at our accomplishments and think, I haven't done enough. So in an effort to remake that, we exaggerate about what we do. Or maybe we pour ourselves in to one area of our lives because we want to be really great at it. Or maybe we remake our lives in the values of Washington, D.C. Or maybe it's in the area of our identity. Uh, Maybe we have always felt confused and secure about it. Maybe it's our personal identity. Maybe it's our personality. Maybe it's our sexual identity. And what we then do is seek to remake it in an image that we see either reflected to us or one in our own head, but we don't go to our creator God to take cues about our identity. Or it may be relationships. We look at the broken relationships of our lives and we long to see restoration. So maybe what we do is put pressure on our family to be the perfect family or our spouse to be the perfect spouse or our kids to be the perfect kids. Or maybe it's just this pandemic and the loss that we've experienced, the loss of joy, the loss of purpose, even the loss of life for some. And so in hoping to restore it, we make other efforts to to recover that joy and purpose. But maybe it's through habits, uh, things, uh, good things that turn into bondage to us, that become vices, what we watch, what we eat, what we drink, fill in the blank. Lacking wisdom and understanding As we seek to restore our lives, we devalue ourselves. But the promise we have here that Isaiah brings is that there is one who knows us. He sees the ways in which we're broken. He sees the ways in which we long. 
He's the one that has knit us together in our mother's womb. Fearfully and wonderfully made. He is the creator and king. He is the redeemer and the restorer. He has the power to remove the heavy stuff from our lives that we can't do. And take it and restore it in a way that's authentic to us. Who he's made us to be. We read about this in the scripture as we read, As the truth is in Jesus, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and put on the new self, listen to this, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We look at the Capitol Dome and go, wow, as we rightly should. And I want to say to you, for those that uh, know God, who have given themselves over to this work of restoration, the angels are looking at you going, wow, look at the restoration the Lord is accomplishing. Sometimes when people renovate their homes, they'll take before pictures. And uh, it's been so long that they've lived in the, the new restoration, they forget where it was. Well, you and I are like that too. Uh, because we tend to focus so much on the external things and the outside things. We, we, we don't appreciate how much restoration God has done in our lives. Again, the scriptures talk about this where it says, you know, we do not lose heart. Why? Though our outer self is waste in our way, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now there you hear the final restoration referred to, but many times we pass that first part. Did you hear it? Paul said, your inner self is being renewed, that's in glory, day by day. Now let me say to you, for those that turn to Christ, the restorer, this isn't a conditional thing. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, is bringing it to completion. He is persevering this restoration in your life. And nothing will stop him because he's an expert restorer. God is restoring you even this very moment. And so the question is, can we lay down our tools? Can we lay down our efforts and plans to restore ourselves in turn to the Lord who does all things well. But uh, this then leads us into what he accomplishes or achieves in restoration. Our second point, the achievement of of restoration. Now, just as you can look at an old stump and see the great tree that was there before, we can look at the world and all its stumpiness and still see um, hints of what it was meant to be, right? More than hints. Sometimes things that are so uh, wonderfully reflective of what God meant to be that it, it, it strikes us with awe. The remains of righteousness and goodness and truth and beauty, the things he intended. But here Isaiah is telling us, The restorer will achieve uh, not only what happened in the Garden of Eden, but beyond it. He will go beyond what we even know, ask, or imagine. And there's two areas that Isaiah focuses upon, even though there's many in this plan of restoration. First of all, the restoring of righteousness. He says, 
but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Now, maybe part of this restoring of righteousness for you is as you've thought about words like righteousness and holiness, what comes to your mind is judgy people, uh, ugliness, self-righteousness. Or maybe you see them primarily as just moral things. But in the Bible, righteousness and holiness are also aesthetic ideas. That is, uh, they're uh, picturesque. They're talked about in terms of splendor. The images we're given are the sun and the stars and a bride's dress. There's something captivating, radiating, and beautiful. Righteousness is not only fair in the sense of honest, it's fair in the sense of the hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus. Jesus shines, uh, Jesus is pure, right? He shines brighter and pure, both those ideas together. And so Isaiah says that this righteousness is the chief work that um, the restorer will do. You know, we have to be honest, one of the reasons we, regular reason why we get pulled into sin is because we think sin is more beautiful than obedience. We think sin is more beautiful than righteousness. It's captivated our imagination. Something's gone wrong. And so we need Christ to restore us through his word, restore our vision and imagination. And one of the areas we see that uh, is in the area of treatment of those that are disadvantaged. He mentions the poor uh, or those that are of low estate, the meek. And here you might be thinking of the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes, the center Beatitude, center blessing, is blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. But then it also extends to the poor and the meek. You find the same concept here, don't you? As Isaiah talks about, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. You see, in the Bible, righteousness and justice are super glued together. Uh, justice is simply the application of righteousness. Uh, it is the practical application of it. It flows out of it. For, for someone to view themselves as righteous and not practice justice is to deceive themselves. It's self-deception. And this is a place that Israel is at when Isaiah prophesies to them. It's something that all uh, people are vulnerable to, but maybe religious folk even more so, because they can tend to believe that they're good. And so in the ministry of Jesus, as he comes to the people, he speaks uh, uh, especially to the religious leaders about this. But he demonstrates it in his ministry in the way that he cares for those that are disadvantaged, the beauty of his justice, those that experience social injustice. You see him redeem and restore a tax collector that everybody despised, or a sinful woman who had been just completely marginalized, marginalized by the religious leaders. Or you see him address financial injustice. In Matthew 23, Jesus pronounces woes upon the religious leaders, not only because they focus on minor issues of justice, they, they let go of the weightier issues, but because they're greedy, financial injustice, or just compassion injustice. They'll criticize him for healing a man on the Sabbath, but they have more compassion for their ox who fell in a ditch, or maybe we'd say more compassion for our pet than we do our neighbor. 
And so as he comes in to restore righteousness, he addresses these areas of justice. There was a reason why the widows and the orphans and the strangers and the poor were drawn to Jesus, just like we might be drawn outside to see a rainbow or a sunset. Because his righteousness was something that um, was beautiful. And they knew that he would restore that to their lives. He would restore justice, the son of righteousness. And as the church is the body of Christ, and as we are the continuing ministry of Jesus, we are to be that place that people are drawn to, those that are disadvantaged, those that suffer, because two things become their experience. One, they actually begin to taste of the justice, the restoration the Messiah King has for them. But also, they then can fix their eyes on what's coming, that future achievement when all things will be made well, which is our last point, the restoring of harmony. Now, these are famous verses. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb. Uh, Now, some interpreters interpret this literally, that there's going to be a transformation uh, on the new heavens and the new earth when the king returns, a transformation of the natural order where animals that naturally would be uh, carnivorous won't be. Um, Other people say that it's poetic. It's actually more about fierce and predatory kingdoms that fight against each other, like Assyria that's attacking Israel at this point. Now, whether it means you're going to get to snuggle a a grizzly bear in heaven, or whether it means you'll be able to walk into any culture and feel like you were as welcome there as a son or daughter of the the city, uh, either way, it's all good, right? All of it is good. And we find that this work that he does is something that... um, enables us to endure where we are right now. His restoring of harmony. Uh, If 2020 has taught us anything um, with the disharmony uh, politically, uh, about racial justice, about mask wearing, it's been a humbling year for America. It's been a humbling year for this nation We've seen the limits of our ability to maintain harmony with one another. And the church hasn't been immune. Uh, Old hostilities have risen up. But one of the things that the restorer can do, and he means to do, is help us in our inability. Humble people ask for help, right? God's hope for our nation as it's been humbled is not that they would just be condemned, but rather that they would look to him to restore the harmony that he's able to do. Verse 10 says that the Messiah King will be a signal or a banner for all the nations. You know, last um, or a few weeks ago, we had mentioned that November is a month where uh, our country recognizes um, Native Americans. And we have mentioned that in our church. And you might ask, well, why do we do that? Well, because we want to make clear that Christ is a banner for all peoples, for all nations, not just the dominant culture. 
And this will be consummated on the new heavens and the new earth, won't it? When every tribe, tongue, and nation is worshiping. But the restoration, though it'll be final there, it's real now. It begins now. God has started that work. One of the things that was so confounding and compelling about the early church was the way that God could forge harmony through those that were followers of Christ. The Apostle Paul actually uses this verse in Isaiah to talk about his ministry to the Gentiles, the ministry that would reconcile a great hostility between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. A very difficult hostility. So hard that Peter had to learn it over and over again. I mean, how hard of it, let's take the imagery, how hard is it to subdue a hungry lion from eating a fat calf? Very hard. How hard is it for us to come together uh, in harmony over Christ? Very hard. But you know, the Spirit of Christ fought through the Apostle Paul. The Spirit of Christ fought through the early church and the men and women there that they would maintain their unity and harmony in Christ. And it would be a witness to the world and a witness to the nations. And the reason it came about was because, as Isaiah tells us, the earth was filled with the knowledge of the Lord. When the earth is filled with the word of the gospel... You and I then have our sights set on what is most important, what is most valuable. We have our sights set on the restorer and his great achievements and accomplishments. And all these other things that cause disunity fall to the ground. Jesus has great power, church. He will fight for the harmony of his church because he is bringing about the restoration of all things, and nothing will stop him. So Advent Advent is a time where we wait and hope. Why? Because there is an agent of restoration, and his achievements of restoration are certain. He has already started the work, and we're closer today than we were yesterday. Would you join me in prayer? Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.